Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is James 4, 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin to know the good and yet not to do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. She is the best scripture reader we got. (laughs) Just saying. That's my wife, by the way. Just making sure y'all know. Thankful that you're here this morning, and we are continuing our our journey through the book of James. Uh, Today we are in James 4, and... Uh, James, sort of as he's done, kind of brings a magnifying glass to the, to the thing as he kind of walks us through a faith that works and what that looks like for us practically. And uh, he is like, hey, I'll, I'll make it more clear for you, uh, people. He's like a pastor, right? He's like breaking it down for us. And that's what he does for us today. And we're going to dig in here and, and get, get going. Uh, but I want to give you a, an inch, a little story, right? Uh, so when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the 90s. Um, I should have started with my World Cup joke because you guys are here and the World Cup is probably happening right now. Right, and we don't care. I'm glad that they're playing soccer, but I don't like soccer uh, and I like basketball. And, uh, and so I haven't watched any of the World Cup. I say, I, I confess, and I'm, I, it is what it is. And, uh, but I'm glad you're here and we're doing this rather than that. And uh, I want you, Jerry, you care. You care about the World Cup, bro. I'm sorry. That might have hurt your feelings. Um, But I played basketball when I was a kid. Basketball is my thing. And, uh, you know, when we're kids, when we're we're adults, we do this too. But, you know, we sort of have this way of looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves uh, as a little bit better than we actually are. When I looked in the mirror as a basketball player, this is what I saw, right? This was me in the middle. Uh, and, and, and then to my right was my, my, or to my left was my friend Mark, and to the, my right was my friend Daniel, and we played basketball together. And this is what, I, again, this is, I thought I was Michael Jordan. I was good enough to be Michael Jordan. I was going to play in the NBA. I had big plans uh, growing up there in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in my tiny little Christian school playing basketball, <laughs> right? Uh, and... Man, but it it, it made me feel better about myself, right? As I watched him play and I tried to play just like him, just like him. I wore Jordans. I stuck my tongue out. I was number 23. I did all the things. I did all the things. But true confession, right? Or time to be honest, this is really what I saw when I looked in the mirror, right? (laughs) Not quite the same thing. There I am on the left. There's Mark. There's Daniel. You know, we had a lot of fun, but we were not Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, okay? We were very far from it. But we all have this sort of way of adapting to our weaknesses. I, I was not a 
great basketball player. I was an okay basketball player, you know? And I learned that as I got older. Like, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. Uh, But we all have this sort of way of dealing with the parts of us that we don't like, right? The fact that, that, that we are weak or that we're not as big and as strong as we want to be or, or, or that we feel lost or we feel alone or that we feel hurt or we feel broken or we feel abandoned or abused, you name it. The things about you that you don't like, that I don't like, we have ways of dealing with those. And we learned from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. They had that too, Right? They had ways of dealing with what they didn't like about themselves. At, at some point, they came to the realization that they, uh, they, they chose to not trust God. And in that moment, their eyes were open to their, to their sin and to their brokenness. And they had, they, they had ways of adapting and dealing with that. They hid. They hid from one another. They hid from God. They, they made cl- clothes to cover themselves. Leaves, that didn't last long, right? I mean, come on, guys. Uh, you know, like it wasn't, a great, it wasn't a great solution to their problem. It's because they, they, were, they were confronted with the parts of themselves that they just didn't really like. And that's exactly what, what sin does. Sin affects all of us the same way, right? It moves us from what we were created for, which was communion with God and relationship with God, community with one another. It moves us to this place of loneliness and and alienation and isolation and hiding and and fear and shame and, and guilt. We were created for a humble dependence upon God, but now we live in this sort of self-preserving, self-confident, I can do this on my own, pull myself up by my bootstraps way of living. And we imagine all sorts of things about ourselves that aren't true. You see, sin, boiled down to a word, could be pride as well. Pride makes us artificial. It leads us to a place where we we create all sorts of false senses of self and and facades of who we want to be or who who we want others to think we are. Right, And there's so two points in our sermon today. The first is this, pride makes us artificial. And we see that in the text. And then we're also gonna see that humility makes us real, right? And it's, we're gonna explore this journey that God sort of takes us on from this place of hiding and false and artificial self to a place of real life and communion with God in Christ. You see the contrast in the text, right? Let's just break it down. Pride makes us artificial. Here's what James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel and do such and such in this city and then spend over a year or spend a year there and we'll do business and we'll make a profit. Sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Everybody like that plan? I kind of like that plan. I mean, nobody would really bash that plan. It sounds like a great plan. Got a, got a thought through. Yet, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. Do you see the contrast? This sort of idea that we're going to be successful, we're going to do good work, we're going to make some money, we have a good plan. All the while, the truth is, you don't know what your life is going to be like, what tomorrow will be. But this sort of way of thinking and doing begins early on in life for all of us, doesn't it? It's sort of like uh, that we're all sort of in this fight, right, to preserve ourselves. We all have these imaginations of what we think we are or what we want to be or what we want others to think we are. And in our desperation to find significance in the world and to, to save ourselves, these defenses form to protect ourselves, to preserve ourselves 
from what we think are superpowers, the superpowers of fear, of shame, and of guilt. Now, we can think about sin. We think a lot about behaviors, right? We think a lot about things that are on the outside. Oh, they're sinning because they're stealing or they're sinning because they're lying or I'm sinning because I'm gossiping. There's these sort of external things. But all of those we know are born out of something very deep inside of us. And it's kind of the sin underneath the sin when we use these three words, fear, shame, and guilt. We're talking about a a sin that's underneath the behaviors. Where do those behaviors come from? Why do we make plans and exaggerate our image? Why do we do that? Because we're afraid, right? Because we're ashamed, because we feel guilty. And some of our defenses are obvious, right? They're like the big walls of a mighty fortress, impenetrable. No one will ever know the real me, right? And, you know, it shows in our relationships. Some of our defenses are a little more Stealth, they're hidden, right? They're buried a little bit more deep under the surface, maybe not as visible, but they're just waiting for somebody to step on them and be activated and the explosion happens and life sort of gets crazy, right? But we've done a great job of sort of hiding it. That's been our defense for a long time, but we can't hide anymore at that point. But here's the truth about these sort of false senses of self, these sort of artificial images that we can create about ourselves. Here's the truth. If we don't own these false selves, if we don't own these parts of us that sort of are, we've created to defend ourselves and, and, and save ourselves, if we don't own them, they will control us. They will own us. I think the pride of self-preservation has at least three forms, and we'll just break them down, right? We'll use fear, shame, and guilt. We'll use this statement, though, that James made. It's a very clear. If you, you don't see yourself in the statement, today or tomorrow, we'll do this plan, then let me, let me help you see yourself, okay? I see myself in all of it, but l- let's break it down. Each of us kind of identify with a different part of the phrase. Here's the first one, right? The first person, I think, uh, this, this person's the person that sort of deals with the superpower of fear. Like fear is so big in my life. I'm so afraid uh, that things are going to break down and I'm not gonna be safe and I gotta find a way to be safe. And so my reaction to this superpower of fear is a superpower of planning, right? I am a planner. I have a calendar. I have seven calendars. I have multiple colors on my calendar, right? I'm going to plan my life to a T and nothing is going to, to, to make me unsafe. Now, is planning bad? No. Are colors on calendars bad? No. I'm learning that in my life as we speak, okay? I need colors on my calendar. They are good for me. However, when I, when I exaggerate those plans and create those plans to keep me safe, to save myself, it begins to impact my relationships, right? I begin to get greedy in my planning. I'm a slave to the calendar, right? So some of us, when we hear this, we're like, oh, I love that plan. Today or tomorrow, we're gonna be there for a year. All right, nice little box. That's great for me. I feel safe. Some of us find our pride more in performance, right? When we read that phrase, we just see one word, do. (laughs) I'm going to go here and I'm going to do. I'm going to perform. I'm going to make a difference in the world, right? We're always kind of asking ourselves this question, am I enough? Am I enough? I got to do more. The pride of performance. We, We find that we're very defensive when anyone attacks our performance as well, right? And it comes from this superpower of guilt. 
that I'm just not enough. And maybe there's a message that you've been hearing your entire life that you're not enough. You gotta do more, do better. And it feels so overwhelming and so powerful. And we respond to the superpower of guilt by an exaggerated sense of doing and performing. So we're workaholics. We're gonna strive. We're the first one to show up. We're the last one to leave, right? No rest. Four hours is plenty. All you eight-hour week people, right? You just need four hours of sleep. Let's work the rest. We're gonna make a difference in the world. And then there's the superpower of shame that comes at us. And we respond to that at times in our desire to save ourselves, right? This sort of exaggerated sense that I can save myself, I don't need God, by a prideful image, right? I'm going to present myself to you in a way that you will be very impressed. You could never know the real me. If you knew the real me, oof, couldn't handle it. I couldn't live under that stress. The prideful image. So we don't express our true emotions. We don't express the true, real us. We just sort of put on a face. We show up. We do a lot of really nice things and do a lot of good things for a lot of people. But it's all born out of this sense of saving myself. And when we read this phrase that James quotes, we're focused on that last piece, right? The prophet. Like, we're going to make a prophet. Like, we've got to be successful. If we're not successful, people might shame us, might make us feel less than, and I cannot handle that. So I've got to cast out an image or, or project an image that I am successful, that I am enough, that I am valuable, that I am safe. We have all sorts of artificial ways of saving ourselves, don't we? And James calls it right out, calls it right out. And he kind of says, you know, I, I sense he sort of is like, how's that going for you guys? How's that going for you? Oh, it's not going well, James. <laughs> you know, it's not going well. Eventually it's going to break us down. Proverbs 16, God, God says this, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. It's going to break down eventually. It's going to break down these artificial selves that we build up in an effort to save ourselves, Exaggerated sense of self-preservation, right? And a really small capacity for trusting God in anyone else. That's the reality that we all live in. That's sin. And the good news is, is that the gospel comes to meet us in that place and invite us to something so much better and beautiful invite us to live as we were created to live. Alive, fully alive to humble dependence. Pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. Earlier in the chapter, right, James says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he's unpacking this even more for us. He's saying, hey, you're not, it's not going to work for you to keep finding your identity in your performance, to find your identity in all of your planning, to find your identity in this amazing profit you're making, in this wonderful image you have in front of all these other people. That's not going to work. I resist that. I oppose that. But my grace is for the humble. So he's inviting us into that. And James does that too. 
right? He doesn't just leave us looking in the mirror all, oh gosh, I'm really jacked up. He, he, he brings the indictment, but then he brings the invitation with it every time. Here's, here's what's wrong. Here's, here's the pathway forward. And we see that in this text. And I think there's two things that we see here that invite us into this pathway, the pathway toward humility, the pathway toward humble dependence upon God. The first one is this, accepting our limits. The second one is paying attention to the spirit. Accepting our limits, paying attention to the spirit. So on this pathway to humility, we see James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Do you see the, the picture, right? It's like that uh, essential oil thing, you know? What is it called? A diffuser, yeah. It's really great. I love those things. They're awesome. But like, I mean, you know, it's cool. It's like, where's, my kids have asked, like, where's the smoke go? Like it's, you know, where's it, where's it going? It's going into, it vanishes. It comes right up. You see it for a moment and then whew, it's gone. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what your life will be. And James is teaching us, hey, if you want to live a faith that works, if you want to see this faith that we're talking about really take root in your life and, and, and produce the good works that, that, are, that, are, that look like Jesus, you got to understand the pathway to faith that works begins with vulnerability. It begins with owning the fact that you are not in control, that your life is a vapor. You can't, you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. You can't learn to trust God without being exposed. But most of us believe, right, and our culture teaches us that exposure is a sign of weakness. And it should be avoided at all costs. Well, the truth is, it is a sign of weakness. But it's the kind of weakness that leads to healing and to hope and to growth and to being alive the way you were created to live. The message of the gospel is that we, you and me, are powerless to save ourselves. We are weak. We have a baptism Sunday coming up in a few weeks, right? We're going to hear stories of people's lives that were changed. You're not going to hear any strategic business plans in those stories. You're not going to hear about anybody who finally uh, discovered their spiritual superpower and now they can come to God and be baptized. That's not how it's going to be. You're going to hear stories of vulnerability, stories of weakness, exposure, limits, loss, sin, pain, hurt, burden, abuse, abandonment. That's what you're going to hear in these stories the things that bring us low. It's so hard to come face to face with our limits. I mean, truly come face to face with our limits, right? It's so hard. I mean, we can kind of talk about it in theory. I have problems. I'm not perfect. But to name those imperfections, to name those problems, to name those parts of our stories and actually say what they are, whoo, that takes work. That's exposure. That's painful. And it happens in sorts, all sorts of ways in our lives. I think there's three ways I'm, I'm thinking about that kind of where it happens. Some of us, it happens very suddenly, right? Very suddenly, kind of like the Apostle Paul <laughs> on his horse, you know, clippity-clop, clippity-clop, like light comes from heaven, 
Suddenly, Paul, you are coming face to face with your limits. You are not in control. Now, it didn't just all happen for Paul, right? I mean, it was a journey he was entering, but that was the moment where he sort of began that journey where he came face to face with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, you're persecuting me, Paul, and he sort of, and he blinded him, and he sent him into a place of weakness and desperation, and he had to let the community of God around him sort of come, come alongside him and help him through that. And it took a lot of time, a lot of time. But it happened suddenly. And for some of you, maybe that's the way it goes. You have a dream. You have a trauma in your life that kind of brings you to your knees quickly. For others of us, um, maybe it's more like hitting rock bottom, you know? It's like the prodigal son. It's, it's, this sort of, it's like this kind of like surrender, right? I surrender, I give up. He's in the pigsty. You know, the picture like the prodigal had, had run from his father. He took his inheritance. He blew it on all sorts of crazy things. He had all of his fun. And then he sort of found himself in a very desperate place. He was so hungry, it says, he would have eaten the corn cobs that were in the pigsty. In the slop. But no one would even give him those. He couldn't even get it himself. Talk about a desperate place. And that brought him to his senses. That was this place of surrender. He found himself at rock bottom. For some of us, that's what it's going to take in our life as we sort of make, as we ask God for this, this movement out of prideful self-preservation into humble dependence upon him. It's going to take that sort of experience. Perhaps you've experienced it yourself and you can share that story with others. For some of us too, it's a, uh, a longer journey. It's sort of a, I mean, it's always a long journey. Let me get that wrong. But for some of us, it's sort of through suffering, the journey of suffering that feels like it's just not going to stop. It just kind of keeps coming at us. When's it going to stop? I, I talked to a friend today or, or this week um, who's been on a long journey with he, him and his wife. They want to have children. They have a desire to have children. And it's been such a painful journey for them as they've sort of been on this journey of infertility and trying to figure out what the barriers are and how they can sort of work uh, to, to find a way to have children and experience that blessing. And it's been a, such a journey. And they've continually sort of had to surrender over and over and over as they've suffered through this. And they came to a place where they decided they wanted to pursue adoption, right? And thousands of dollars on the line, they've put it into this, they've invested into this process, such a beautiful picture, such a beautiful thing. Surely God's gonna honor this and bless this. And the adoption falls through. And it's a loss and it's painful. And they are broken, devastated. But as we talked this week, we agreed on this that something very beautiful happens when our world falls apart. Something very beautiful happens to people when their world falls apart. It's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for them. When we, are com when we come face to face with the fact that our life is a vapor, when we come face to face with the reality that we don't know what tomorrow holds, we don't know what's gonna, what's gonna happen tomorrow, that's painful, and our world can sort of feel like it's falling apart, but something beautiful happens then because that's the place where God meets us. 
Even after Jesus rose from the dead, one of two of his disciples, maybe all of them, still had these doubts. They didn't, they, they, they saw it, they, they experienced the miracle, but it was still so like, oh, I'm still afraid. And the superpowers, right, of fear and shame and guilt perhaps were still just invading their worlds. And he comes to them, he shows up for them, even after he's, he's risen from the dead now, he shows up to them. And his first words in that room, one of his first words were, let not your hearts be troubled. The anxiety that comes to us when we come face to face with the weakness and the limits of our life and the loss that we've experienced and the suffering that we've endured, it's painful and it brings a lot of anxiety. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm, I'm with you. He goes on. He, he's talking to Thomas particularly, I think, in this text in, in John 15 and he, 14. And he's talking about how he's going to send someone to be with him. But before he says that, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, when you come face to face with your brokenness, when you come face to face that your life is a vapor, when you come face to face that you don't know what tomorrow brings, but you've been living in this way that you think you got it all figured out, it's gonna hurt, it's gonna be painful, and when you come there, remember, I'm there with you. And I am saying to you, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And then he says this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But he doesn't just say, hey, okay, now go, go obey. He continues, how are we gonna do that? I will ask the Father and the Father will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because he doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Do you see when he, when he brings us to our senses, when we come face to face with the brokenness of our own lives and our realities and our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and we feel exposed, he meets us in that place and he says, hey, I'm calling you to a new way to live, but I'm not just gonna expect you to do that on your own. I'm gonna send a counselor to do it with you. I'm giving you the gift of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. He's coming to be with you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm coming to you. And that's what he does for us. And on this pathway to humility, we must come face to face, right? Accepting our limits. But then there's a step after that as we sort of continue this journey. And that is paying attention to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our ordinary, everyday, nitty gritty lives. The Spirit doesn't live just in his church. He lives in his church here and outside of here, his people. He's with us, right? We don't come here simply to experience the Spirit. He is with us. I will not leave you as orphans. I will go with you, he says. In the Old Testament, just like us, God's people had a hard time remembering and hard time believing that God was actually gonna keep his promises, that he was actually gonna follow through and show up for them and stay with them and be with them. And so he would send prophets and preachers to them to remind them of this. 
One of them was Zechariah. Zechariah's job was sort of to remind them that God's going to keep his promises. He's going to follow through. And he's going to be with you. And he gives this amazing, God gives him an amazing vision. And this vision, sort of, you can see it in this picture. I mean, you know, it's not the best picture, okay? But it's the best one I can find. I emailed Michael Winters, and I'm like, do you have a better picture of this vision that Zachariah had? And he was like, I got nothing. So this is what we came up with, all right? There's these two trees in the vision, and, and they're, they're, they're pouring oil into this lampstand. And it's fueling the fire of the lamps, the seven flames. And he says this, the point. It is not by your power. It is not by your might. It is not by your hard work, your ability to white knuckle your way through, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You will win the battles, but it is gonna be because I am with you. And when you recognize that you're connected to the source, the only way for you to burn is for you to be connected to the source of the oil in your lamp, then you will live. That's how you will live, by my spirit. Right, staying connected to, paying attention to the Spirit of God. But so often it's so hard for us to stay connected because to stay connected means that we move when God moves, right? And to pay attention means that we don't get distracted every time, every time something around us moves. Paying attention to the Spirit of God is the essence, though, of the spiritual journey. Seeing where God is working and participating in life with him in the ordinary parts of our life. The gospel is for all of life. And the spirit is God's presence with us in it. He didn't take us to heaven when we became Christians. No, he sent his spirit to be with us here. He didn't take us out of creation. He came into creation. So he's using all of his creation to point us to this truth that he is with us. Perhaps one of the most ordinary parts of our life is our work, right? I mean, it's kind of like that necessary evil sometimes. You just got to do it. And we don't always love it. It's not the most fulfilling thing at times, you got to do it. But we can also sort of, because it's hard and because it's painful to do work at times and because it's cursed in the Bible, it says that, uh, we can sometimes create these artificial selves and these artificial ways of thinking about work and sort of exaggerate our work a little bit and make, it feel, make us feel a little bit better about it, right? We can take pride in our work. And when we do that, that artificial sense of self in my work that I find my identity in it, or I blow it up, or I make it sound better, or way worse than it really is, right? Pride makes us artificial. God is inviting us to something very different. Humility makes us real. So how do we find the presence of God? How do we see the presence of God in the ordinary parts of our life, in our work? What does it look like? Sounds really good, but what does it actually look like? Well, I don't know exactly what it looks like for you, but I know what it looked like for this Scottish farmer who wrote this little prayer. All right, here's the prayer. Bless, O oh God, my little cow. Bless, O oh God, my desire. Bless thou my partnership and the milking of my hands, O oh God. Bless, O oh God, each utter 
Bless, O God, each finger. Bless thou each drop that goes into my pitcher. Oh God. The simplicity of this prayer to me is profound, right? He's seeing God. He's, he's bringing the ordinary part of his day, of his life before God. He wasn't exaggerating it in any sense. It's very simple and basic. He was finding how to sort of let his actions and his thinking and his feelings sort of align and all sort of be present to God in that moment as he's milking a cow. Right? Bless, oh God, this spreadsheet. <laughs> Bless, oh God, this truck that I'm driving. Bless, oh God, this website that I'm building. May every part of it matter to you. Bless, oh God, this meeting I'm about to go in with this client who is a pain. Lord, bless this partnership. What about bringing all of life before God in our work? All of it to the utter, right? He prayed for the utters. I thought that was funny and awesome at the same time, right? What does it look like for the very basic parts of our work to be present before God, to, to, to sort of notice God's presence in and over them and in us and around us. Humility makes us real. Henry Nouwen says, prayer can only become unceasing prayer when all of our thoughts, beautiful or ugly, high or low, proud or shameful, sorrowful or joyful, can be thought and expressed in the presence of God. All of them. And it requires us to sort of turn all of our thoughts into a conversation. So he says the main question then is not so much what we think, but to whom we present our thoughts. Prayer is an outward careful attentiveness to the one who invites us to this unceasing conversation. If we want to stay connected to and pay attention to the work of the Spirit in our lives, and specifically we want to even just do that in the ordinary nitty-gritty parts of life like working or parenting or friending or whatever it is that you spend most of your time doing, what would it look like for you to see unceasing prayer as living all of that before God? It's not something, I, gotta, I don't have to walk into my bedroom and get on my knees, and I, it's not like I have to have a prayer closet. I don't know where that term came from. I'm sure it was really good and well-intended in that somebody was very disciplined in their prayers, and I am all for that, love it. But what would it look like for us to live all of life as it's our prayer closet? All of it, before God, all of my thoughts, all of my actions, all of my emotions, in unceasing conversation with him. I think that's what James means when he says, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Make your plans. Plans are good. Calendars are wonderful. They're God glorifying, right? God is a God of order. Make your profit. That is good. God wants us to be generous. He wants us to have things and, and produce beautiful things. Do that. Perform, work hard. God calls us to have a strong, good work ethic, to work hard in serving the Lord. But we do all of this if the Lord wills. 
which means we do all of this before God, all of it, in the presence of God. Faith that works, right? Faith that works humbly lives all of life before God, knowing that pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. It's who we were created to be. Humility is our true identity. Humble dependence upon God. And the sin that James is talking about here at the end, where he says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It is sin to know the good and yet not do it. He's not just talking about getting your act together when it comes to taming your tongue or growing up as a Christian or getting more wisdom. All of that he wants, yes, all of that is is part of this, but the sin I think he's specifically talking about here is the sin of sort of living or planning or working or operating without a continual connection to our God, thinking that somehow we can do this on our own. That God is just sort of an existence in our head, but not in our emotions or in our actions. That God is sort of over there and we are over here and we'll see him on Sunday. The sin he's talking about here is a failure to to connect what we're doing and what we're thinking and what we're feeling right now in this moment. Connect it vitally to who God is and what he's done for us and what he is still doing in us. It's a sin to know to do that and not do it. And we find out when we don't do it, we create all sorts of artificial things in our life that cause all manner of problems and all sorts of conflict and all sorts of pain and hurt. He's inviting us to stop and say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Here I am before the Lord. Here I am, all of me. Where I'm at right now, I'm before you, God, and I, I'm bringing all of this to you. Look at the Psalms. That's exactly what David does over and over and over. His spirit is a constant reminder that he is with us, not asking us or telling us to do this on our own, but that he's doing it with us. He has not left us as orphans. He has come to be with us. Amen. And as we live connected and attentive to his presence, we're literally getting a taste of what it's gonna be like in heaven. The day we'll see him face to face. Ultimate reality. Really real. You were created for that. And until then, he reminds us, he gives us opportunities to to be reminded of his presence with us and his connection to us Right? He gives us this symbol of communion. And I hope that every week as we do this, this does not ever become ritualistic, but that you're able to connect this practice vitally to what God has done for you in Christ and what he's doing in you today and what he's going to do in you tomorrow. And you see this as his promise that on the night in which he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, hey, friends, this is my body given for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember my suffering for you so that you don't have to keep suffering in your performance and suffering in your pride and suffering in your your sadness and your guilt. I'm coming to be with you in it. Remember that I have experienced, I have felt what you feel. 
the pain of brokenness. And then remember that I've created a new covenant between you and God that says, I'm holding on to you. I'm not gonna let you go. My shed blood is a symbol of that reminder, a new covenant between you and God, and it's sealed forever. This is a reminder that he is with us. He's not left us as orphans. He's not asking us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, white knuckle our way to heaven. He's saying, put down your defenses, stop being fake, be real, come to me. See my love for you on the cross and experience my presence with you by my Holy Spirit. So as we come today and we break off a piece of bread and we dip it into the juice or the wine, the wine will be marked with twine. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded of that and to live into his presence this morning with us right now, right now. There'll be stations here in the front. There'll be stations in the back, stations in the balcony. Gluten-free communion is over here to my left. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this, is, this meal is for those who are in Christ as a reminder. If you're not a Christian, we wanna invite you to take Christ to accept your limits, to be exposed and to receive his love for you on the cross and to receive his spirit that he wants to give to you. You don't have to live as an orphan anymore. He loves you. And if that's something you wanna talk more about, I'd be more than happy to speak with you after the service. There's leaders in the back that would do that as well. Let's pray and when you're ready, you can take communion.